Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. All right, ready? We are in the season of Advent. It's about a period that's about a month before Christmas. Who here remembers what the word Advent means? What does, what, what does Advent mean? Did I hear somebody say coming? Yes? <laughs> yeah, it does. It means coming or visit. Whose coming or visit are we waiting for? Jesus. Yes, that was the easy one. Yep. So Advent is a season of preparation. We are intentionally preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time. Isn't it fascinating, Christian, that we need to intentionally prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus? It's not something that our hearts are at the ready to do. We need to intentionally slow down. That's hard this time of year, isn't it? But we need to intentionally, we have to, not just need, we have to intentionally slow down, create some space to breathe, create some space to reflect, and to think, and to read, and to pray. These are all things that is part of preparing our hearts to celebrate Christ's coming at Christmas. So here's my question for you. How's that going this year for you? You're knocking out of the park? Has Advent been really restful for you? Have you been able to slow down? For me, it's been a real, real challenge. It feels like a fight to slow down. And even to think about what Advent even means, it doesn't feel like we're even in Advent to me. It feels a little bit like I'm just kind of skimming the surface. I don't know if you can relate to that. I'm just kind of skimming the surface of the season so far. I'm going to blink. It's going to be all over. So whether you this morning, as you're thinking about your Advent season so far, can relate to that, It's hard. It's been a challenge. Or whether it's been really rich and fruitful and and full for you, what we're being offered this morning is a gift. I want to invite you with me for the rest of our gathering to slow down a little bit. We're going to breathe. (laughs) We're going to reflect on the significance of the coming of Christ at Christmas. As a church, we normally preach through books of the Bible But often during the season of Advent, we take a break from that and we look at the themes of Advent. For this year, we're doing something untraditional, non-traditional. We're looking at three different themes coming from the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Three different verses deal with three different identities of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw Christ our King. This is the King of the universe who has all authority. And last week, we saw Christ our God. This is Christ who is fully God. This is, this is fully God, like the uncreated one through whom all creation was made. This is Christ. And then our theme for this week goes in seemingly a totally different direction. Our theme this week is Christ our sacrifice. This is the same Christ who is the King of kings, right? Whom we owe all of our allegiance This is the same Christ who is fully God. He's a member of the pre-existent Trinity to whom all of our glory and worship is due. That same Christ is also our sacrifice. 
So now we are approaching the upside-down beauty of the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so my prayer has been that as we explore this aspect of who Christ is, as we explore the gospel, that God would give us a growing sense of awe for who he is, a sense of awe and wonder as our hearts are prepared to celebrate the coming of his son at Christmas. And there are no words that I could share this morning that's going to make that happen. It isn't any of us just trying hard enough to conjure up this feeling of awe. This is something the Spirit does inside of us. And so I actually want to take a break right now. I want to pray that the Spirit does that for us, gives us a sense of awe, and prepares our hearts in this Advent season. Let me pray. God, we are boldly asking for you to move this morning. Spirit, would you move in preparing our hearts to see the significance of your son and what he has accomplished for us? Would you give us a greater sense of awe because you are revealing more of yourself to us this morning? We need you to do that. We're asking you to do that. Would you please, by your grace, for the good of your people and also for your glory. Amen. All right, we're going to use this question to guide our time together this morning. The question is this. What about Christ our sacrifice inspires this sort of awe of God? But we need to start here. We will miss the depth of this awe for our good God if we don't first understand an elementary, fundamental, core attribute of who God is. Like we won't understand the need for Christ, our sacrifice, if we don't understand this piece of God's character. Do you have any guesses what that attribute is? Holiness, did I hear that? Well, I may have heard it. Please open up your Bibles. We're going to see a prime example of this in Scripture. We're going to open up your Bibles to Isaiah. If you didn't bring your Bible or something on the table here, table here, and also table on the back, we are going to be spending our time this morning in Isaiah as well as in the New Testament. So you're going to need your Bible. Isaiah is a larger book in the Old Testament. If you found the book of Psalms, just go to the right a little bit and you'll find Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to start our time this morning, looking at what is that fundamental attribute of God. We've got to understand if we're going to see the awe of God here in Christ, our sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 1. What we're about to read is Isaiah having a vision of God, a theophany. And this is what he records. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these are angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's that one attribute that we see on display here? Say it out loud. What is it? God is holy, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is utterly holy. To be holy means to be set apart. There is nothing that is like a God. He is completely other. He is completely set apart. But there is a piece of God's set apartness that Isaiah particularly is feeling. One aspect of it he's particularly feeling. How does Isaiah respond to seeing God? What does he say? Woe is me. Isaiah despairs. This is his reaction to seeing this holy God, Isaiah despairs. You see, Isaiah understands that God is infinitely holy, and Isaiah is what? He's, he's not. And here he is in the presence of an infinitely holy God. Think about this, church. Unlike anything else in all of creation, the fall did not affect the God of the universe. It didn't break him. It doesn't affect his motives. His motives are pure and holy. It doesn't affect his actions. It doesn't affect his plans. Like he is untouched by the effects of sin in him. He's not broken. He's not twisted like we are. He is utterly and completely and infinitely holy. It's hard to grasp just how holy God is. But maybe this will help us start just a little bit. What do you suppose just one sin, however small or however great, how do you suppose just one, what one sin is before an infinitely holy God? That one sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. This can be a little bit difficult for us to grasp. Our, our justice system doesn't operate that way, does it? Like the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. So the bigger the crime, the bigger the punishment. The punishment for running a red light is very different than the punishment if you stole a car. But what is just one sin before an infinitely holy God? It's an infinite offense. We're not talking about an offense from one sinful being to another sinful being that our, that our justice system is set up to deal with. This is one offense against an infinitely holy God who has no sin. He can't tempt anybody to sin. He has no sin in him. He does not do sin. Sin is everything that's contrary to his very nature, everything that displeases him. An infinitely holy God, even in just one sin before him, is an infinite offense. Each and every sin. And that peace in us that starts to well up and cries foul, that says, well, that isn't fair, that is proof that we don't really understand God's holiness. It goes deeper than we can possibly imagine. And the weight of our sin before that sort of infinite God goes much deeper than we can possibly imagine. But for Isaiah, God's holiness was inescapable. There he was in the very presence of the God of the universe. And so for Isaiah, that was a huge problem because Isaiah was acutely aware of his own sinfulness. What does he say? He says that he's a man that has unclean lips. That's his way of saying, I am sinful and I live among a people who are sinful. So what does that mean for Isaiah? If there's an infinitely holy God, that now there is Isaiah who is sinful in his presence. If that infinitely holy God is infinitely offended by Isaiah's sin, only has infinite amount of wrath for Isaiah's sin, what does that mean for Isaiah? Paul, later he'd write in a letter to the church in Rome, he would write, for the wages of sin is death. 
death is the result of sin. It is always the necessary ultimate result of sin. And Isaiah knows this. No sinful being can be in the presence of an infinitely holy God and live. No sinful being can even look upon an infinitely holy God and live. Yet here is Isaiah beholding the infinitely holy God. My friends, be in awe of God's holiness. Here's an artist's rendering of that scene. It didn't look like this, but here's the rendering. See, the, 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 the light representing God, the, the man kneeling is representing Isaiah, and that, that being in the middle is the seraphim, that, the angel. This is an artist's rendition of that. Be in awe of God's holiness. Church, this is your God. For this God is sung an eternal song, and it is this. Forever this is sung to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. God is infinitely holy. And us? Well, we are like Isaiah. We are a people of unclean lips, so to speak. We are sinful, and so we deserve death for our sin. That should beg a question in your minds. Why aren't we all then dead? Right? Why are we still breathing air, and we're sitting in here, and we've gathered together to worship? Well, the answer to that question now brings forward another attribute of our good God. The reason why you're not dead right now because of your sin is because God loves you that much. He desires relationship with you. Try to pair this together, God's infinite holiness and his love for you that is unimaginable. The only reason why we are still here, even though we sin over and over and over again, is because God has stayed engaged and hasn't turned his back on us. This is going to be hard for us to grasp, can it? If somebody sins against us, sins deeply, sins repeatedly against us, often the healthy thing to do is start to draw some really strong boundaries, to start to create some distance in that relationship. But the infinitely holy God, who is infinitely offended by our sin, did not do that. He actually engaged with us and moved toward us. This is a love of God that we can't fully understand, but we can praise him for. We should be in awe of this sort of love. One example of this love we see all throughout the Old Testament. Remember, Israel, his people are sinful, but God did not abandon them. His infinite holiness doesn't mean he's absent, doesn't mean he's aloof. He doesn't abandon them, but rather he gave them the law. The law was over 600 commands that God gave his people for how a sinful people can be in relationship with an infinitely holy God. It was a law that taught his people how to live, how to live differently than all the people around them, how to be separate from all of those people, how to be holy. The law was a good gift from a God who stayed engaged, moving toward his people out of love for them. And a piece of this law, a core piece of this law, was to set up the Old Testament sacrificial system. It taught Israel that they sin, and so what they could do was grab an animal, bring it to the temple at certain times of the year. It could be sacrificed in order to atone for their sin. God put a process in place because he loved them. He gave them the law and gave them the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a picture for them, wasn't it? is a picture that they sinned, 
And so now death needs to happen because of that sin. Get this, like God was patient enough with his people to start to teach them about his infinite holiness and the weight of their sin in a picture of an animal being sacrificed and the blood being shed. So every year at that specified time, the people would feel the cost of their sin as they brought an expensive animal to the temple to be sacrificed for their sin. Friends, we need to be taught this too. We need to learn and relearn this lesson over and over and over again. Notice this. An Israelite could not appease God's wrath upon their sin by doing some random acts of kindness. They, they couldn't just give some more money and have their sin wiped away or just be a good person or go to the temple more frequently. Death had to happen as a result of their sin every, every year. Your guilt before an infinitely holy God cannot be wiped away by you attending church. It can't be wiped away by giving to our year-end giving push. It can't be wiped away by reading the Bible or praying or a lot or trying to be a really, really good person. No amount of good works you could possibly do is sufficient to take away the infinite offense of your sin before an infinitely holy God. The opposite is also true, and maybe this is where you feel the pull more. No amount of self-inflicted suffering can wipe out your sin either. Do you ever feel like maybe I just do a little bit of penance, right? Maybe I suffer in some sort of ways. God will look at my suffering and say, well, you sinned, but you also suffered, so I'm going to wipe it clean. No amount of self-inflicted suffering can ever Wipe out the infinite offense of your sin before an infinitely holy God. Blood has to be shed. Sin always, ultimately leads to death. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But church, I want you to see the love of God even in this. He gave ancient Israel the gift of the law and the gift of the sacrificial system because he was patient with them because he moved it toward them, because he was teaching them about who he is and who we are and what that means. This is a gracious, patient, loving God. The sacrificial system was a gift. God didn't abandon his people. He's not aloof. He's not absent. Be in awe of this. This is an infinitely holy God. The sacrificial system teaches us that God's love goes deeper than our sin. Do you hear that? The infinite offense of your sin before an infinitely holy God and God's love goes deeper than your sin. He hasn't abandoned us. Like God's holiness, the extent of God's love is hard for us to grasp. But it's beautifully true. And so we get to celebrate that. I'm hoping that we get to be in awe of this as we continue to prepare our hearts. This is a love we have not category for the love of God for us. But that picture, that old sacrificial system, the law, that picture of God's patience and love for us is only the tip of the iceberg of God's love for us. The sacrificial system was only ever a type. It was only ever a shadow pointing to something in the future. 
The sacrificial system was never the destination. It was just a sign pointing to a much greater fulfillment of God's love for us, a greater and greater picture. You see, God left the sacrificial system with two fatal flaws. Two fatal flaws that point forward to that greater fulfillment of God's love for us. I want you to see them. Move in your Bibles to the right to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is toward the end of your Bible. It's a bigger book. Almost all the way to the end, we mean Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see these two fatal flaws here, even here just in one verse. We're going to read verse 11 of chapter 10 here in Hebrews, and I want you to be looking for what are those two fatal flaws of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Verse 11. And every priest, and the writer of Hebrews here is talking about the very thing we just talked through, the sacrificial system. And every priest stands daily, daily, day after day after day at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Church, what's the first fatal flaw of the Old Testament system? Who in here has only ever sinned once? Yeah, good. Nobody, right? We sin over and over. We just went through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus sets that bar for perfection at perfection, (laughs) high. And so we fail to reach that all the time. Often moment by moment by moment, we sin over and over and over. And ancient Israel was no different. They sinned over and over and over, and they sinned in some pretty uh, uh, huge ways. And that sin required them to bring animal after animal, year after year, to the temple to be sacrificed for their sin. Over and over and over and over again. They would see the costly consequences for their sin. Year after year after year after year. Animal after animal after animal after animal. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. Repeatedly peopled sin. So repeatedly sacrifices were needed to atone for their sin. Sacrifices that were what? Never ending. Repeatedly you sin. So repeatedly you would be required to bring a costly animal to the temple to be sacrificed over and over again. Never ending ending. This is the first fatal flaw of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The required sacrifices were never ending. They would bring an animal over and over and over again. There's also a second fatal flaw of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and it's at the very end of verse 11. What is it? Yeah, those repeated sacrifices could never take away their sin in the first place. These sacrifices were insufficient. So these very things that we're doing over and over and over and over again could never take away sin in the first place. The human heart, our hearts, remained unchanged. And so sin remained. This is a second fatal flaw. Animal sacrifices were not sufficient to take away sin. How could they be? How could the death of an animal possibly be sufficient to pay for the infinite offense of our sin before an infinitely holy God? 
the only payment that could possibly be sufficient is the death of the sinner, isn't it? Not the death of another, another animal. It's our own blood being shed to pay the price for our sin. That's the only thing that could possibly justly satisfy God's just wrath upon our sin. So doesn't it seem silly, church, when we can convince ourselves that if we throw God some good works, if we throw him some church attendance, if we throw him some self-inflicted suffering, that somehow we can make up for our sin. It's ridiculous. We can't do it. To believe that we could do anything to atone for our sin is to not grasp the weight of our sin or just how holy our God is. Nothing short of our own death could justly appease God's just wrath upon our sin. Which means, as we are alive, as we are breathing right now, there is nothing that we can do to appease God's wrath upon our sin. We are powerless to do that by ourselves. We do nothing. So what then? Are you ready to marvel at God's love for us? I want us to be in awe of God's love here in the sacrifice of Christ. Let's read on Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14. But when, who? Christ had offered for all time a, what? Single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time till his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has what? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My friends, Christ is our perfect sacrifice. Think about this in relation to the old system. How often does Christ need to be sacrificed so that your offense before God could be wiped clean? How often? Once. This is unheard of in the history of God's people. One sacrifice, not repeated over and over again. The writer of Hebrews says this twice throughout this passage. A single offering for all time, a single sacrifice for all time. This is the perfect sacrifice of Christ for us. The repeated sacrifices under the old system, my friends, have been made obsolete. (laughs) Or better, the sacrificial system has been completely fulfilled in the person of Christ and his sacrifice. All that that was pointing forward to was Christ and what he would do on our behalf. His perfect sacrifice fulfills all of the sacrificial system. My friends, what needs to be added to the sacrifice of Christ so that your sin can be wiped away before God the Father? What needs to be added? Nothing. Nothing. It was perfect. There is nothing you could possibly do to improve upon the the sacrifice of Christ. Nothing you could do. There's nothing else you need to have. Nothing you need to do or not do. There's not a list of do's and don'ts that somehow are going to improve upon Christ's perfect sacrifice for you. It was a single offering that he has, what does verse 14 say? For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
That is for those who are being made holy. This is what God does in the hearts of his people now. He gives us new hearts, so he starts to change our desires over time. So we actually start to desire to please him. This is to be sanctified. This is what God does in his people. This is not Old Testament anymore, is it? We're given his spirit. Christ's perfect sacrifice now gives us our spirit so our hearts can be changed. We're being sanctified. Christ's perfect sacrifice was completely and fully and entirely sufficient to take away sin. Nothing can be added to or taken away from this perfect, perfect sacrifice. Friends, I want us to be in awe of the love of God for us here. Remember, this is the God who is infinitely holy, right? This is Christ our King, King of kings, who has all authority. This is Christ our God, fully God, to whom we owe all of our praise and worship to, now also Christ our perfect sacrifice, because he loves us that much to stay engaged and move toward us. This life and sacrifice of Christ are the clearest expressions of God's love for us imaginable. Paul, he writes a letter to the church in Rome, and this is what he writes. He writes, but God shows his what? Love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still infinitely offending the infinitely holy God, Christ died for us. That is a picture of God's love for us. The Apostle John, he's one of the inner 12. He lived with Jesus. This is how he puts it in one of his letters. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was made visible, found expression among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might what? Live. Remember, we were a dead people destined for death. But he sent his son so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means that Jesus took the wrath that was due us upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness instead. How about that for an unfair exchange? Something that we didn't deserve at all. If we're going to cry foul that an infinitely holy God is offended by just one sin, then we should be crying foul here too. How do we as a sinful people Earn, we don't earn, receive God's righteous, uh, Jesus' righteousness that he earned for us. Took our place, took God's wrath upon himself that we deserved for our sin. That is propitiation and it is beautiful. A clear expression of God's love for his people. When we couldn't do anything to remove our sin from ourselves. When we were dead. We were destined to eternal separation from the God of the universe. God himself did what we never could. He made a way for us to live and not die. God did that for us. Do you remember that vision that Isaiah had that we read about back in chapter 6? Do you wonder what happened to Isaiah? He's a sinful being in the presence of an infinitely holy God. Well, chapter 6 goes on, and this is what is recorded. Then one of the seraphim, remember that's the angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Remember, Isaiah just wrote, he has unclean lips, right? That, as, that, that means he's sinful. But this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What did Isaiah do to atone for his sin? Nothing. God did it. Through this imagery of a hot coal through an angel. God atoned for Isaiah's sin so he could even be there and behold this vision of the almighty God. How could God do that? What was this pointing forward to? This infinitely holy God that Isaiah has seen in this vision would send his son, who was fully God, the king of kings, to an insignificant town in the Middle East to grow up in Israel for over 30 plus years of his life to go by the temple and see sacrifices happening over and over and over and over again. In Jesus, God would later become our perfect sacrifice, forever ending the need for all those animals to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Is the perfect sacrifice of Christ. His sacrifice was so unlike the animals, wasn't it? How could an animal stand in your place? They're animals. But Christ could. He was fully human. How could an animal possibly live a sinless life? They're not even moral creatures, especially cats, but they're not not even moral creatures. An animal can't do that, right? But Christ can. He was also fully God. This is the perfect sacrifice that was single, one time, and fully sufficient to take away our sin, the sacrifice of Christ. So friends, did sin have the last word? Could the grave contain this perfect sacrifice? Look again here, Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13. Where is Christ right now? Is he dead in the grave? No. What what, does the writer say? End of verse 12. But he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Friends, Christ conquered the grave. He's, He's the victor. He conquered sin and death. What could never be broken, he broke. Because sin and death does not have power over Christ. He's our perfect sacrifice. And now, friends, you and I get a benefit from that. Is that crazy? (laughs) This is the love of God for us, seeing the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And if you trust Jesus as your only Savior, not yourself, not Jesus and something else, if, if you have faith that Christ is indeed your perfect sacrifice, then all of the benefits that we just talked about are yours right now. You have life. You're going to live with the God of the universe forever. The infinite wrath that God had upon your sin has been removed from you by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It's life. But if you aren't sure, not sure who Jesus is, trying to figure things out, my encouragement for you, would you please consider to pursue those questions? I'd love to talk and hear your story. We've been praying that God would save you. 
that he would give you faith in which you can respond and say, yeah, I believe Jesus is my only Savior, nothing else. No other man-made religion or system of philosophy can touch the glory of God that we just walked through here this morning. And I believe that it's true. Jesus, would you save me? We've been praying that the Spirit would do this in you. So if you feel the Spirit nudging you, if there are some gnawing questions about who this Jesus is, I would love to talk to you. Because outside of Jesus, we would still experience the full wrath upon sin. So anybody who dies that doesn't trust Jesus alone to save them is going to experience that sort of judgment from God, eternal separation from him. We want you to enjoy the benefits of Christ's perfect sacrifice. My friends, I hope the Spirit is moving to give us some awe here of the holiness and the love of God, of the perfect sacrifice of Christ that was single for all time, right? Once. And that was completely and entirely sufficient to remove the guilt of our sin before God forever. This is a sacrifice that we celebrate here every week in a very, very tangible way through celebrating communion. We have the body of Christ represented in the broken bread here, of his body being broken on the cross. We see it. We, we can feel it. We can taste it. It's tangible here. The, the juice of the wine represents Christ's blood that was shed for our sin. Remember, blood always has to be shed because of sin. But if we are in Christ, it was his blood that was shed for our sin rather than our own. And so we get to celebrate this, this, this truth of the gospel that's been done for us on our behalf. Let me pray for us as we prepare to celebrate communion. God, I thank you. Uh, you are so good. You have exhibited patience to us, your people. Patience when we are born sinful. We can do nothing but sin. We are running to everything and, and anyone but you, and yet you are patient. You give us pictures to understand who you are and really the gravity of our situation before you. That is your grace to us. It's an extension of your goodness. It's a picture of your love for us. So God, I thank you for that love that goes so much deeper than our sin. And God, I thank you that you did for us what we never could and this perfect sacrifice of Christ. God, I pray that we've heard this story over and over again. This would not, we would not be numb to it. We would not be callous to it. Spirit, would you show us greater depths of the beauty of the gospel to us, even right now, I pray. Spirit, would you move? Would you be at work speaking to us? Help us to listen. Give us a greater sense of awe of who you are and what you've done. And even now, as you prepare to celebrate communion, please prepare us. Spirit, prepare us. Prepare our thoughts, our hearts. And help us to celebrate. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.